Welcome to Tech Talks, the technology podcast with David Savage and Jack Pierce, publishing on Mondays and Thursdays. This is a show packed full of interviews and debate with technology leaders for the love of tech. On the show today, due to popular demand, we are going to play you the recording from our live show, which was recorded last Thursday on the 31st of January at White City Place. Uh, This is a talk all about GovTech. We've got a number of different speakers. First up, you'll hear from Robin Keegan, who's uh, a member of staff at the Harvey Nash Group. We're looking at some of the research that they've got to provide a bit of context to the conversation as a whole. And then we have a 15-minute presentation uh, from Johnny Hugill, who works for Public. Uh, And they've done a lot of research talking to about 150 different startups across the GovTech sector, mainly in the UK, but also a slightly broader picture than that too. Then there's a 30-minute discussion uh, hosted by myself and Jack, who's taking questions from Twitter as they came in. That includes Johnny. It also includes Dr. Hannah Allen from Babylon Health. She's their Associate Medical Director. And uh, Gillian Kowalchuk, who's the CEO and founder of Safe and the City. As I said, a number of people got in touch. Uh, Unfortunately, they weren't able, obviously, to come along to London. We've got listeners now from all over the world, which is very gratifying. So for those of you who aren't close enough to get to London, it's your chance to see what we were talking about on Thursday. Hope you enjoy this, and we'll be back later in the week with a normal show. If you open the pages of mainstream news and media, you'll tend to find that tech is often not reported in a positive light. So at worst, stories are often inaccurate and absolutely terrifying, and at best, they are mildly concerning. For example, people are actively encouraged to be scared of the growth of artificial intelligence. So tonight, we wanted to explore how tech can be used as a force for good, placing the everyday needs of society over the commercial goal. And GovTech makes up a huge part of the tech sector, which needs support, uh, funding, and the right environment to thrive in. So I'm going to go through just three quick slides which highlight Harvey Nash's previous survey results, uh, where thousands of people around the world have taken part, which will hopefully bring you some context to the rest of this evening. Europe are now playing catch up with other regions around the world in regards to the development of innovative technology. So we asked professionals, in your view, which region do you believe right now is producing the most innovation? And the results were clear. So unsurprisingly, North America have topped the charts with 35% of responses. And UK and Ireland's 10% share has been knocked into third place by uh, Southeast Asia with 13%. And Western Europe only received 6% of responses. I think it's also worth mentioning that the survey's biggest demographic is in fact British, which I would probably assume are more enthusiastic about our standing globally than what we probably ought to be. My concern is is that if startups and tech in general are under pressure to produce innovation, then they're building fast and big and spending investors' money, and they do not have the good of society as their chief goal. So I do think the UK has one key advantage, and that is diversity. So we asked professionals whether the country that they work in is the country that they were born in. And 26% of the UK's tech workforce is in fact from overseas, which is significantly higher than the US at 21%, and even higher than some of our European neighbours, such as Germany, at 24%. And in London, that figure is even higher. 
Diversity has been proven to increase innovation, to increase growth, and to increase funding. And if the tech sector is to provide the resources to better protect individuals using platforms, then it is key that this rich mix of ideas is protected. I also think it's important that users are given a seat at the table in regards to the development of technology. So we ask professionals whether they trust their companies to use their data effectively, and most of you didn't. So if GovTech is going to be successful, then consumer trust is absolutely key. So here are our challenges. How do we ensure that data isn't just simply commercialized? And how do we keep our environment diverse and rich with thought and ideas? And how do we ensure that users' interests are effectively advocated? And what role does central government play in providing effective technology solutions? But we do have a huge opportunity, but there are risks. So Barcelona has been lauded as a great example of how to embrace tech and also improve participation in democratic services. But equally, China and their social scoring system, where individuals are scored and either granted or denied access to services as a consequence, is a great example of how tech has been used to strangle society and ultimately damage consumer choice and confidence. But thank you very much for listening to me, and I hope you enjoy the rest of this evening. <clears throat> Hello, uh, I'm, I'm Johnny. I work for a company called Public. Um, and I thought it'd be great to kind of talk a bit today about what we think about GovTech. Um, GovTech is sort of quite a new phenomenon. Um, people weren't really talking about it much a few years ago, and I'm, I'm really delighted to kind of see an event centered around it. Um, so I'll just kind of talk through what GovTech is, why I think it's so important, and, and kind of where I see it going in the future. Um, so as you can imagine, GovTech's you know, quite straightforward, it's, it's really using technology, and that means existing commoditized tech, but it also means new emerging technology, uh, AI, blockchain, uh, computer vision, to, to totally transform our existing public services. Um, but what I think is really important on, on my vision for GovTech, or, or public's vision for GovTech, is that, is that we want that to be driven by startups, by, by entrepreneurs, by the kind of people in this room who um, you know, have, have real passion for, for driving entrepreneurial change. And that means we don't want it all to be entirely driven by government ICT departments. And we don't certainly want it to be driven by uh, major corporate incumbents and, and IT suppliers. Um, and I think this is really just a natural progression of the sector in, in the same way that we've seen the progression of similar sectors. right? So if you think of every single important consumer market, the sort of entire delivery model has completely changed and been disrupted. We've seen you know, hotels go to the gig economy. We've seen uh, a movement towards uh, e-commerce, towards fintech. Um, and I think we see the same thing happening in government, right? The, the existing operating model for government is just outdated. It's not consumer-centric. Um, and indeed, in the same way as all these other key sectors, it, it can be changed by technology. And also in the same way as all of these other sectors, it will be startups, entrepreneurs, and innovators who will really be able to kind of drive the most important change. Um, so here I've just put kind of 17 subsectors for GovTech, and, and these were all the ones I could think of. But, but basically, the point is there are lots of smaller markets within GovTech um, that, if you look at, are actually all very interesting and, and pretty credible markets in their own right. So you know we've got uh, transport and mobility, we've got health tech, uh, we've got smart cities and infrastructure. And I think the point is when we think about GovTech and we think about this entire wrapper we can put around it. Um, there is a lot of area in, in public sector spend and in government operations where really things could be done differently. Um, and I think the most important point, right, is that in each of these sectors, there already is a pretty credible pipeline of companies 
you know, a pretty nice ecosystem in London, in the UK and in Europe, who just tomorrow could transform how we do policing, could transform how we do uh, smart cities and infrastructure, but also fishing and, and tax and regulation and health and social care. Um, and if we put a big wrapper around that, GovTech really is quite an interesting and, and, and meaty opportunity. Um, so why is it so important that governments work with startups? Well, um, I, to my mind, there are loads of reasons, but I put the, the most important five. Uh, I think the top three are just sort of why startups are better and the bottom two are why it should probably be a kind of important policy objective for government. So number one, I think we'd all agree that startups can just do some things better, right? Um, if we look at those markets I just showed you before, in almost all of them, startups have found a way of, of delivering a better operating model or a better technology or a better way of doing things. Um, I think we'd be pretty foolish to think that startups can't do the same in government sectors. Uh, number two, you know, we can permit more innovation in startups than we can in government. So not only are startups more creative, uh, more risk taking, uh, you know, more flexible, but also, you know, we'd rather they take those risks in government. I think we're happier sort of having a, a pipeline of creative people operating in hubs who are taking risks and changing things than we are with, you know, government departments and HMRC uh, taking the same risks. Um, and third, and I think most importantly, uh, startups offer a kind of niche and deep expertise that is just totally unparalleled. It's totally unparalleled in government and it's totally unparalleled in, in big corporate companies. Um, and I think if you think about every single founder you know, right, all of them have kind of one single business challenge or problem that they want to solve. And, and it keeps them up at night how they can do it better and how they can use tech in a smart way to solve it. And, you know, if these people have a genuine passion for some small area uh, of, of one of those 17 sectors I talked about before, it really should be them that we leave to be the change makers. It shouldn't be, you know, talented generalists in, in policy making positions or, or big corporate IT positions. Um, so, I, what, you know, what I say is, is power to the people who are genuinely obsessed and, and passionate about changing this stuff. Uh, one thing that we've seen, which is really interesting, is that a lot of really exciting, fascinating GovTech companies have either been founded by people who have really deep expertise in a sector. They could be ex-policemen, they could be ex-doctors, um, or they're founded by people with just the kind of technical expertise um, that you just won't find in the public sector. And I think it's foolish to try. Uh, and then the, the two reasons I have at the bottom are sort of reasons why I think government sort of as a matter of policy should be thinking about this more. Um, the bottom is that like sadly in the public sector we still have just enormous amounts of consolidation and, and monopolies. So we looked at the policing market and we found that in IT 67% of IT expenditure goes to just 10 suppliers, right? Which is just crazy. It's not, it's not sustainable to have a market where there's so little competition. Um, so what's the best way of promoting competition? Well, it's probably engaging with this country's, you know, thousands of, of pretty credible technology startups. Uh, and last, um, I was just talking to Hannah about this and, and she says that, you know, it, it's, it helps for Babylon that they've worked with the NHS for them to go and, and take on foreign markets and, and it really lends them a sense of credibility. And I think <clears> there really is no better kite mark and stamp of, of authority than having worked with Her Majesty's government, um, you know, despite what's happening uh, in the last few months. <laughs> But if you've worked with TfL or the NHS, uh, trust me, that will help to work with Australian health providers and, and uh, Spanish transport systems. Um, and I think more generally, and this goes to the, the introduction we had before, I think GovTech is actually a unique opportunity for the UK. It's a pretty, it's, it's a pretty kind of uh, emerging and, and not a fully mature opportunity. It's not like other countries are miles ahead of us. And I think that, you know, if we act now, it really could be the UK speciality. And, to my mind, there's probably no better speciality we could have. Um, I'll just talk about some of the com companies in the UK that are sort of really changing the game. Um, there are hundreds I could have I've put up there. 
Um, so Adzuna, for instance, uh, is a company that uses AI to scrape uh, a whole load of uh, job application data uh, and create and basically create an aggregated list of every job everywhere. So it's sort of the perfect job site. Uh, they won the Department for Work and Pensions 12.5 million pound contract to run the Universal Job Match Board. Um, they dislodged a, a major incumbent monster. Um, it's it's a real great you know sign of of government appetite for change. Uh, you know, Babylon, as we're here later, have have totally transformed how we can engage with the NHS and with our doctors. Um, I'll just talk through two examples in a bit more detail just to kind of show the, the breadth of, of GovTech and what it can mean. Uh, this is a company called Apolitical. And, and what Apolitical do is it's a software platform for civil servants uh, to share ideas and find creative solutions to problems. So if you're a civil servant in Scotland and you're trying to figure out a solution to violence prevention, you can go and have a look on the database and you can engage and connect with a civil servant in Bogota in Colombia or Barcelona in Spain, and they can tell you how they solved the same problem, what they did, what they bought, what, the, what they learned. Um, for every single challenge you can think of, you know, there is someone who's probably done it and probably learned something from it. And I think this goes back to the, the point I was saying before. Like, this is an entirely new operating model for government. It's not how government used to work, but it's how sort of almost every other sector works. Uh, and platforms like this you know, really show what can be done and, and what can be done better. Um, this is a totally different platform, but also I think really interesting. So what three words have, have divided the world into uh, a series of three by three meter squares? And to each of those three by three meter squares, they've given a unique address. So this one is Rowdy Marvel's groom in, in Finitrop, Germany. And what that means is if you want to find this exact square highlighted here in Finitrop, Germany, you can search Rowdy Marvel's groom and it will get you there every single time. So every single square, in the world has a dedicated address that you can direct things to, that you can navigate. Um, and this kind of geolocation system is not only transformational for places that don't have addressing. I mean, it, it is. But also in the UK, think about how much better emergency searches could be conducted, deliveries could be conducted, uh, policing, security. Uh, and, and really pleasingly, what three words have started working with the UK police force uh, in 2018. Um, the government is starting to show some appetite. So on the right is... Uh, is some stuff that the UK government's been doing. Uh, the most important of which I think is the GovTech Catalyst Fund, which is uh, something run by GDS, um, the government digital service, which helps to kind of fund pilots of up to £500,000 for, for innovative uses of GovTech. Um, and as you can see here, there's also some really interesting global stuff. So we've got uh, GovTech Poland, uh, we've got uh, the UAE GovTech Prize, uh, and Canada, I think, uh, tops it all with a $100 million uh, fund for, for funding innovative uh, startup solution with government. And £20 million pounds sounds like a lot, but in terms of actual government IT expenditure, it's really a drop in the ocean. So government spent almost £7 billion pounds on IT and software in, in 2015. Um, almost all of that went to a pretty small group of consulting companies, systems integrators. Um, to my mind, it should be going to, to people who already have tech products that are out there. And I mean, you could buy for the, a tenth of the price. Um, so I've sort of mentioned that GovTech's a great opportunity, and I've alluded to the fact that it's quite difficult to break into. And, and those companies I mentioned before, quite sadly, are sort of an exception rather than the rule. So you know, what Babylon have done, and what What3Words have done, and what Sarah and Echo have done is great, but we're not seeing enough of it. Um, and the global GovTech market's worth over £320 billion. In the UK, we think it's worth about seven. Um, and really, just not enough startups can access the market. So 
we did a survey of some startups uh, who've tried to work with government. Uh, 93% said, it's, percent said it's, it's, it's very difficult working with the public sector. 89% uh, said it's easier working with the private sector than the public sector. 100% uh, said government needs to do more to work with startups. Um, and it's really not surprising. Uh, here are some of the sort of key barriers that, that I think are really stifling things. I'll just talk through some of them quickly. Governments are just too risk averse. So the problem is, is that policymakers or ministers might have big promises about how they want to innovate in the sector. But fundamentally, when it comes down to a sort of commercial manager, a public sector buyer, a procurement official, it's a lot easier to go with the less risky option. Uh, I think the adage, nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM is, is certainly true in the, in the public sector. Um, quite interestingly, we still find investors are discouraging startups from trying to access the kind of public sector markets. And you know, if 89% of people think it's more difficult working with the public sector than the private sector, it's not really a surprise to, to see why. And what we want to see is a position where companies can go to their investors and say, look, there's a seven billion pound opportunity here, or there's a 20 million pound contract that we can go after. Um, this should not be a stumbling block. This could be one of the most lucrative, reliable, uh, stable customers that we could ever get. Um, there's a big problem with, with lock-in with, with existing IT suppliers. So if, if, a con if a government department signed a 10-year contract with a big supplier to do their IT system, you know, they're going to be sitting on their hands for another five or six years until they can make any changes. The other problem is once they've got there, it's so difficult to disentangle existing legacy systems that it's easier to just repeat the cycle. Um, I think startups really don't know where to go or what to do or how to engage the government. So if you have a great idea, startups don't know who to pitch it to. And they don't know where to find new opportunities, and they don't understand how to navigate the, the kind of ever-changing policy landscape, right? I think Brexit is a great example. We know firsthand that Brexit presents so many opportunities for tech companies to engage with government. But if you were a you know, trade or logistics supplier, or you had a, a good way of innovating in ports, where would you go to start to, to, to engage with government? It's, it's very difficult and opaque. And the problem is, once you've got there, tendering and public sector contracts are so complicated, so opaque, so outdated, that it's pretty unrealistic to expect a startup to be able to compete. So whenever you go for a significant piece of public sector work, you have to fill out a, a tender. Um, the most recent assessment found that a tender costs on, on average about 3,500 euros for a company to fill out. Um, also, if you have tendering, legal, procurement law expertise in your team, you're obviously a lot more likely to win. If you're a two-person company with software expertise and one of you is a, a great growth hacker and the other one's you know, excellent at, at uh, business development, you know, it doesn't mean you can navigate public sector procurement or, or very opaque uh, European U Union laws. Uh, and lastly, uh, startups still have quite major concerns about IP. So we've seen quite a few cases in the past where startups have worked with government, done something really interesting and innovative. And then at the end, there have been some pretty shady uh, conclusions about who owns the IP and who owns the, the resultant product. And so many startups are still quite resistant and reluctant to deal with, with government, which they see as sadly quite an opaque customer. Um, and just to finish off, I'll just talk a tiny bit about public and, and how we think we can solve the issue. Or not solve, but help. Uh, so we, are, uh, we invest in, we accelerate, and we incubate GovTech startups. Uh, because this is an emerging sector, that makes us the largest investor in GovTech in Europe. But uh, we, have a, we have a portfolio of about 25 companies. Um, and similarly to those kind of 17 sectors, what's really interesting is, is there's just such a vast range of, of different things here. So we have uh, contactless charity boxes, good box. Uh, we have forward health, which is secure communications in hospitals, sort of slack for, for hospital workers. Uh, we have Flynotes, which is a new digital consent platform. We have Strawberry Energy, uh, smart benches in cities that lets you charge your phones. Uh, Apolitical, uh, Yoda, your personal GDPR compliance bot. 
uh, future chatbot for government customer services, a real massive array, array of different government tech platforms. Um, but I think maybe the most interesting thing we do to solve this problem, and, and I think it's probably the most fundamental problem, is what we're trying to do is bring together two communities that are just totally at odds with each other. Um, so in 2018, we, we hosted the GovTech Summit, where we tried to bring together the most influential politicians we could to really engage with this issue. So we brought President Macron, uh, the, the mayor of Paris, Justin Trudeau, and most importantly, we brought one and a half thousand technology startups to meet people who they would no otherwise never engage with, to get them to meet commercial directors, to get them to meet procurement officials, to get them to meet policymakers, and to show them this is what we can do. We're ready. You know, we're a credible company. We've already got loads of private sector clients. Give us a chance in the public sector. Thank you very much. Thanks, Johnny. Johnny, may as well stay on stage. Oh, yes. we'll, get, uh, we'll get Hannah, Gillian, and, and, uh, and Jack. I nearly forgot your name. I speak to you twice a week every week. And, yeah. Right, we know what public do and who yes, you are, Johnny, yes. so we'll skip you. But Hannah, Gillian, if you just kind of very quickly say who you are and your roles so that people know sure. uh, in advance of the conversation, that'd be great. Sure, I'll try and be quick. Um, so I'm Hannah Allen, um, I'm a GP, um, and I'm Associate Medical Director at Babylon Health. So um, I've been a doctor now for 11 years. Um, I was trying to do some kind of uh, innovative work um, within the NHS prior to joining Babylon. Um, and due to kind of budget cuts, et cetera, and CCG um, issues with funding, I wasn't able to pursue that. So I then was looking for other kind of technological um, answers to um, the issues, particularly around women's health. So I was looking towards uh, Babylon Health, um, and I've been at Babylon now for three years. Babylon, um, we've launched now in uh, many different countries. We've got operations in Rwanda, in Canada, in the UK. Um, we serve around 2.7 million uh, patients worldwide. Um, we connect patients to doctors um, digitally and remotely via smartphone um, and we've got various different amazing artificial intelligence that connects um, patients to the type of help and assistance um, that they may need. So it may be a symptom checker, it might be a kind of a vice line diagnostics um, assistance, um, lots of different artificial intelligence for um, helping out with various different ailments. There we go. Hi, I'm Jillian. Uh, I am the founder and CEO of Safe in the City. So Safe in the City is a navigation app, if you're familiar with Waze, but we're focused on pedestrian safety. Um, so we have a partnership with the Metropolitan Police, and essentially we tap into when you plot your route where there are um, a heightened risk of crimes that are related to your walk, um, as well as other people's ratings of the walk that might have a similar profile to you. We also crowdsource information that layers on top of that, and we're more interested in kind of the trends uh, related at the moment on sexual harassment, because this is a massively underreported crime and was actually part of the founding story of how I come, came to create this idea and uh, take this journey. Um, and yeah, we're doing really exciting things in terms of building out kind of how we leverage technology and the power of the crowd to start forming um, areas and bridging the gap between kind of uh, public sector, but also into businesses that we can create not only street level changes, but kind of broader changes um, as a whole city or communities. Cool. Um, as we said, please tweet as we go. 
Uh, it's at tech double underscore talks. Jack's got the feed in his lap. Yeah. You can grab the mic off me, although you do have a rather loud voice anyway. So. Yeah, I don't really think I need a microphone in here. No, no, no. It will cover the back. No difference. So, yeah. uh, the hashtag is at tech talks live. So do comment and ask questions as we go. Don't put that in the hashtag. Did I say at? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Anyone listening to the show will know this is normal. Uh, anyway. Stuff wrong. Look, the first question that I thought we'd ask, and I'd, I'd probably go to Johnny with this. Um, there was another event today. Uh, Dot Everyone held a, an event on responsible tech, and Francesca Bria, who's the CDO, CTO CDO of Barcelona, was talking there. I think I spotted a, a quote online saying, I, I want to explain this to citizens. It's not just for government. And I suppose it kind of leads me to query, how can technology play a role for democracy for, for people rather than just technology uh, and look at those positive examples that we're seeing from around Europe and, and implement them here closer to home. Mm. Uh, Francesca Bria is great, um, real energizing pro-tech force that I think London and the uh, UK really could do with. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, no, I, uh, they're, they're, I think one amazing thing that we're seeing, and I mentioned it in my presentation, is, is we're seeing a sort of whole new way of engaging with governments. Um, so previous channels for, for, for citizens to, to participate, to, to share their voice that were previously just completely inaccessible and now being opened up by, by tech platforms. I mean, um, if, you, if you've followed uh, Macron's Grand Debat, where he's <laughs> travelled around France and sort of trying to grovel to every single French citizen he can, um, whatever you think of that, it's really boosted his ratings. And, and now Macron, sort of for the first time, has is, is sort of established himself as a fairly stable French president. And what's quite interesting is that entire campaign has been founded on a, a French startup called Cap Collectif, um, which has basically provided an online tech forum for citizens to share their views, uh, to arrange meetups. And then uh, when President Macron goes around towns, he knows what people care about, what, they're, what they want to talk to him about, and what's really important. Um, and I think local councils, local governments, uh, cities, and even, even countries can now engage and consult with their citizens in ways that previously was just totally impossible. I guess it's about protecting our interests, right, through tech. It's not just about democratic services, but, you know, um, people moan about the NHS, people moan about access to, to healthcare, and you've got someone like Babylon who are trying to, to, to do that in, in a positive way. But how do you protect user interests rather than necessarily just the technology companies and stopping that data becoming overly commercialised? Well, kind of like how when we have Ricardo Fernandez on, right, with his... We had Ricardo Fernandez on our show um, from uh, Prodigy Bank, right? And he said that um, that Prodigy Bank basically are a cross-border lender for uh, students who want to move their country and go to another university. Yeah. And his business collates data in terms of that based on means tests that will predict how much people can earn in the future. Now that data is incredible, right? That's really cool. It's a nice set to have, but could that be? subverted, manipulated, taken, changed. I suppose, I suppose it's to companies like Babylon, you know, how, how do you make sure that it is in people's interest and it doesn't become just, an, you know, another big tech concern where you're worried about self-regulation gone wrong? Yeah, I think, um, you know, if we kind of take a step back and look at what we've got in this country, you know, we're very lucky in the sense that we've got, you know, um, healthcare that's freely accessible to all. We are incredibly lucky to have that. And you go to places like Bangladesh or, you know, Rwanda, where we launched um, a couple of years ago, the, the accessibility for a lot of those patients who really need it when they're in the remote areas mm. is really, really minimal. So I think 
when we kind of look at this, we need to kind of take a step back and say, actually, we are super lucky to have access to all of these amazing resources. And what people really kind of take for granted is that we trust, we trust the NHS, don't we? It's such a trusted kind of, I hate to use the term like brand associated with it, but, you know, we really trust the NHS. Um, and how do we, how do we build technology that has that level of implicit trust um, so that, you know, why, why do you trust a doctor when you go to see a doctor, right? You know that that doctor's been to medical school, you know that that doctor's got the right kind of qualifications, you know that that doctor practices as a doctor and gets assessed as being a good doctor, you hope. Um, how do we do that for, for technology as well? And I think that's a really, it's really interesting and, you know, we're only going to be as good as society perceives us to be and the people who are creating that technology. And in order to make it in the right way and to work with the regulators and to allow people to embrace technology, we have to gain that trust. Um, and we need to be clear and transparent about how we're building technology, um, the ethics companies need to be clear about what their ethical principles are, how they're handling data, you know, the whole thing about uh, that came out with, with the Facebook scandal yesterday, you know, really highlights like the importance of of using data in an ethical way um, and, and not abusing that power. Um, and I think it's, it's so important from a kind of technology stance to remain that needs to always be in the forefront, particularly in healthcare. I suppose there's, there's an interesting point there. We do automatically trust doctors. Yeah. Um, but when you're building a new platform, wholly new, and it for you is it is you know purpose and mission really are at the at the core of what you're doing, Gillian, right? Yes. Yeah. But and you're dealing with you know you're, you're okay, so you're partnering with the Metropolitan Police, you're partnering with borough councils, but your platform is entirely new. There's no necessarily strong reason why people would implicitly trust that. That must be a challenge for all startups mm -hmm. coming into GovTech if you're not an ex-doctor or you're not someone who's previously worked in a, in an established sector or part of the industry absolutely i think there is um there is a really mistrust around technology and there's a lot to prove in order to get to kind of a point where people do trust you now to put them put an app on your phone or give an email um, for even the wi-fi password mm -hmm. um, so i think the opportunity in GovTech is really around looking for those areas that do welcome innovation. Uh, we, we were lucky that um, one of our early team members actually was a retired Metropolitan Police officer. So um, he was able to pave the way and knew internally who, who would be you know, looking for this or who had the same frustrations that they were sitting on kind of banks of information but really not able to do it, whether that was you know, internal reporting or you know, budgets that they wanted to maintain. Um, so that's been a really um, you know, an amazing kind of partnership that we've been able to get. And not only to kind of put the science and what they have available, so we have the deployment feed that comes through every day that the police have access to. So again, being able to give that transparency that, hey, this, this is information from the police. These are risk areas. We really want to practice street smart and give you that information and that transparency. But of course, we want to be accountable to our users as kind of a crowd um, sourced um, application. We really have a lot to lose if we're not accountable to the things that we say because we'll lose the users, we'll lose kind of the, the businesses that we have on board and the partnerships. So, it's been critical for us to build a brand based on kind of ethics and that we are following kind of best practices along every step of the way. Cool. We, we have a question. 
from, from the audience uh, is from Mr. Andrew Hayes, who I guess this is aimed at you, um, Hannah. Um, can you see a time when doctors get a five-star rating like Uber drivers? <laughs> is that is that going to be an accessible feature on there? You know, this person's really good at doing this. <laughs> But their bedside manner is awful or something like that. <laughs> but, well, we kind of laugh about this, but actually I think in some ways it can be useful. So I specialise in women's health. I specialise in sexual health. So from, you know, from a kind of reviewing, like, um, patient passing on information about a doctor to another patient, it might actually be quite helpful for yeah. them to say, this doctor is actually really, you know, really hot on women's health and fits coils or whatever. Um, and pass that on to other patients. So I don't necessarily agree with the whole um, like Uber style review and mainly because we tend to, you tend to complain more than to put positive remarks onto those types of reviews and that effect on the kind of medical profession and trust therefore in the medical profession potentially could be affected Got as well. Awful, we ended up with like a trip advisor. Yeah. <laughs> but, but like on Uber, but, you, can, you can rate the driver, but the driver can rate you. So yeah. the, the doctor could always rate yeah. the patient, yeah. you know, as long as they keep it confidential. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can see the way that that's going. <laughs> Talking about trust and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Moving swiftly on, I imagine. <laughs> And the other thing that, so at Babylon, we, we um, ask all patients to kind of rate their consultations, but we always say, um, you know, we get amazing um, feedback and, and four and five star reviews, but we always say to our doctors, when we're training them and when we're doing their appraisals, we always say, you know, there's not, we're not pushing you to get four and five stars. In fact, I would worry about a doctor who's consistently getting five stars. And most of our GPs are in agreement with us on that in that we recognise that, you know, it's normal to not always do everything that a patient wants, you know, mm. because you have to practice within um, a framework that you're um, happy with and within your own limitations as a practitioner. But I, just to add on that, I think there is a power, like we do rate the walk. So um, this is something that, you know, we all have our lens on what, informs our safety, whether that was historic trauma or just nerves or how you were raised or, you know, whether you're new to an area or you're traveling for the first time alone. Um, so those are important pieces to capture and it's almost impossible to find any other means of doing so other than through kind of everyday technologies. Yeah. So being able to leverage that, like, you know, crowdsource or feedback loop to be able to move beyond kind of just you know, everyone, here's a piece of tech, go this way. We just expect everyone to operate the same kind of, you know, conveyor belt. No, we do have our variations and there mm -hmm. is something really beautiful and important to be able to start building technologies around how, you know, myself as a Canadian traveled quite differently to maybe a local, you know, tall bloke that, you know, knows his way around without, you know, using a navigation app. All of these technology advances rely on data. Right, but Johnny, you talked about barriers. Um, I'd imagine that understanding where those data sets are, what state they're in, what legacy technology some of the government has in place, the, the, the kind of or technical debt that stops you from making good sense of that data is, is going to be an issue. And also, I suppose incorporating any data that you're collecting in the in the, in the technologies that Babylon and Safe in the City are building, and incorporating that with the Met Police and the NHS. How do you unlock data? I know that's a really broad question, but how do you unlock? data within government and public sector reach to make sure that you do have a positive impact? What's, what learnings have you seen? I, th I think what's quite interesting, and you might be surprised here, is, is like government does think and worry about this stuff quite a lot. And there's sort of whole teams of, of people worrying about, number one, how can they better unlock or 
clean data. But then there's also worried about people worried about how can we better regulate data. Uh, I think just a, a, another point is um, there's a big challenge at the moment where government is, is really trying to figure out how to regulate and, and procure mm. AI. Um, and it's, it's mainly because there's just no existing framework for doing that. And, mm. and you know, they, they're aware of what the general concerns are, what the, the ethical concerns are, but also what the technical concerns are. Um, and I think, to be fair to government, like that's a pretty difficult challenge, thinking about how can we, how can we do that. Um, but, but it is really important that for us to go forward with these things and, and, and for you know, apps like Babylon to become more widespread, that we do need to establish proper, proper frameworks for that kind of thing. Perfectly timed question from the crowd then. Um, from Ashley Duke Kienzel, apologies if I've mispronounced that. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, who decides on what the ethical way of dealing with data is and does GovPlec, GovPlec, GovTech play a role in that? So I, 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 my view is, is that government absolutely should play a role in that stuff. And I think it's, it's part of like, what is the role of government today? And, and that's obviously changed so much. And at the beginning, we were talking about the concerns about big tech companies owning data and manipulating data. And, and those are pretty valid concerns. Mm. Um, and to me, like that really seems like the sort of area that government should be should be doing something. I don't think it's a good a good outcome if, if we start having tech companies that do self-regulate, you know, and, and we sort of leave it up to the market because we've seen so far that that, that is a bit of a problem. Um, the problem then is that how can we trust government to do this stuff, right? Um, my view is that government has the right intention. It really cares about this stuff. Uh, the problem really is that there's not enough skills and technical expertise. Yeah. I, th I was just going to say to add on to that, I think everybody needs a voice in this. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It needs to be like an open debate. It needs to be an open dialogue. Um, it can't just be coming from one sector mm -hmm. to impose onto another sector. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we need to take a step back and kind of say, actually, what are what what is our ethical stance on data? How do we handle data? Who does it belong to? All of these big questions. And companies can't just sit by and be agnostic towards this. We need mm -hmm. to take a stance on that. It's not good enough to just say, actually, we didn't think that would happen, so we're not taking responsibility mm -hmm. for that, you know? Um, but equally, I think we need to come together as a group and say, you know, how do we handle this? What do we do? These are big, big questions and big issues that are affecting, you know, public and private sector across across the world. Um, and we need to start coming to some sort of cohesive um, mission that we're, that we're all happy with. I think traditionally we can kind of feel as though we're pushed into a corner by regulators and regulators may feel that they're pushed too far by private sector companies, but equally there's got to be some middle ground. Just on that, we had uh, Ben Williams. Ben Williams? Uh, yeah. Ben Williams from... Um, yeah, Adbot Plus and IO, yeah. He was on the show and he said, you know, there needs to be that happy marriage between government and um, te big tech because if you give big tech the chance to self-regulate, yeah. he says it's like giving yeah. the keys to the asylum to the inmates. Yeah. And my point on a government is if you give them the keys, they'll probably end up locking themselves in the asylum. So yeah. there needs to be that sort of, that that joined upness with the user on the, on the seat as well. I mean, Ben was saying to us, excuse me, Ben was saying to us, if, um, what was Ben saying to us? <laughs> <laughs> Lost my train of thought, which I knew would happen. But no, ben, ben magically said to us the fact that, and I'm just going to flick to my notes here, um, Adblock would not basically have come to market today if 10, 15 years ago, when advertisement was moving onto the internet, they had a user 
at the seat of that table. They had someone representing everyone mm. else rather than, mm. I don't know, big tech or conglomerate sitting mm. there. So mm. it is about that happy marriage, I guess, which is, as, as you highlighted, Johnny, is quite far apart at the moment with tech yeah, and, yeah. and government. Definitely. I'd also add, like, the only information and data regulator in the UK government is this tiny department called the ICO, um, <laughs> which is pretty mad, really. Like, con yeah. considering how much other stuff is regulated, we have you know, off-gen for energy and off-what for water. Um, I, I think that we really need more funding, effort and concern for the ICO and a, a sort of more sustained uh, concern with data. And um, I was just going to say, what about the leverage that um, massive private companies like Google and whatever have? Tax breaks and yeah, stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, but also the fact that like, academics are drawn to go and be research scientists for like Google DeepMind or whoever. Um, and actually that puts a lot more power into those massive yeah. private mm. companies' hands and therefore they have much more leverage with, with the government. Mm. Um, you know, sector, how do we deal with that? That's mm. a really tricky question. And I think there's something important too to, you know, being kind of a, a female founder and a, a very kind of sometimes minority and a, a sea of kind of uh, generic kind of looking faces in tech. It's, it's really difficult to be able to also represent your own perspective and how do you build kind of companies around things and values that you stand for. Um, and how do you be able to use that information to kind of pass on and pave more ways for kind of tech for good or you know mm. for purpose uh, businesses that are using data for kind of public benefit. Mm. <laughs> but in the in the introduction, Robin talks about China. Obviously, the social scoring system is terrifying. Um, it's that nosedive episode of Black Mirror. It is very much like nosedive. <laughs> With rating and collecting data and. You know, if you think about health insurance or you think about car insurance and the way that maybe vitality are putting trackers on staff, is there a danger that you can accidentally build some kind of social scoring system into the way that we manage people? Who wants to take that? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important, um, again, to be able to use data for purposes. My background is in, in public health and epidemiology, so really interested actually in sexual health. So mm. interested in how, you know, a lot of under the surface things happen that <coughs> contribute to massive public health spend and public mm. health problems mm. such as HIV. Um, but from that, you know, as kind of a previous researcher, it was really interesting to be able to construct something within a tech platform that we could shave down, like what are the bare essentials? We don't want your Facebook login. We don't want to you know, take your video or take any kind of personal data. We wanna scrape that because ultimately, in some ways, the less we have an opportunity to bias ourselves, um, the more that we will actually kind of contaminate the tech that we want to actually benefit people. Um, so, yeah, I think that's probably a sidestep to your question, but... Um, In your talk, you yes. talked about barriers again, and this yeah, might be more for you two on the end, but Johnny, I'd imagine you've got some yeah. examples from the cohort, you know, when you're talking about companies like Yoda and Forward Health. Yeah. When you're dealing with the public sector, there's, uh, from the podcast, from our learning, from talking to some of the, the companies, especially in health tech, they, they often misinterpret who their customer is, right? They think that the doctors, the clinicians are their customer, but actually it's procurement. And if you go from one health trust to the next, that structure and that department could look wildly different. I suppose if you're dealing with the Met Police or you're dealing with local borough councils, every single time your customer and, uh, sorry, I suppose your client is, is different. What are your learnings 
when you're trying to build a tech company that straddles all of these different bits of local government and central government, how do you, how do, you do that successfully? How do you build when that's the landscape? Do you want me to go first? Any, anyone who wants to go first. <laughs> uh, no, I think I think the, the public sector is the single most complicated, fragmented, and, and opaque market. Like it, you can't really picture anything more difficult. We have central government, you then have local government, you have local councils, you have combined authorities, you have LEPs, and you have NHS trusts, you have uh, CCGs, you have you know it, the list really goes on. Uh, we have uh, over forty police forces, all procured in different ways. Um, it's it really is a maze. And and I think to be honest, one of the one of the reasons a lot of successful founders in this space come from industry is because as Julian said before it's it's pretty impossible if you haven't mm. to understand how to navigate this and who to talk to mm. and where to go um, I'd say it's one of the main reasons public exists and and why we can offer value to startups is is that if they come to us and they have an amazing tech product the first thing we know what to do is is sort of who to put them in front of um, in government there's a thing called the, the black hole between policy and procurement and I think it's certainly true right yeah. you know you'll hear so much good policy uh, from ministers, from senior officials, they talk about tech all the time, like more than I do. And and when it comes down to procurement and and commercial decisions, uh, sadly we don't have enough buy-in from those people in the kind of high-level discussions. Mm. I think it's really for us. I guess it's been how do we stack kind of the public benefit? So that was one of the first things, you know, in terms of okay, if even if this is you know related to right now crowdsourced information on personal safety. Well, we, we know that we have to kind of align ourselves with credible forces that we can share that anonymous data back with and they can build on their intelligence picture. So right off the bat, we, we have that kind of public good that we're being able to give back. Um, it has been a long process and I'm glad it, you know he raised that it's fragmented because at first it was like, well, maybe I'm Canadian and this is just a whole other system. But I mean, that stacked on top of just the complexities of, um, you know, a whole number of different uh, parties at the table. It is really about how do you align um, yourself with kind of current, I guess, strategies. So um, for us, it's very much against kind of violence against women, um, some of the policymakers that are, um, you know, working on different, uh, you know, types of misogynistic kind of uh, policies. So kind of having to work backwards has been one of, um, I guess, our means to get to the right people in the end. But it is it is quite a maze and it is um, still a journey and will be interesting when we move to another city, how we navigate those. Uh, so I've got a, a, a question from the from the crowd again, uh, from said said, uh, that's C-E-D under slash S-A-I-D. Uh, Question for everyone, really, but Johnny, you might want to start off. Um, how best could the government assist young startups such as Safe in the Sea? It's an easy one to answer. Yeah, that, right? yeah it's, it's difficult, and <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure Gillian can can say what would be most helpful to her. But I think um, I think government has to be aware that there are lots of different types of startups, right? So I think the way that they need to help two to five person startups is different from the way they need to help ten to fifty person startups, and then scale ups. It's all different. Um, the really young ones, we need better ways of sort of having government as a lab where, you know, mm. ways of connecting small teams who don't have the capital, who don't really have the runway to, to do anything significant, but finding ways that government and, and these companies can partner in small pilots. Um, there are some really interesting models, uh, I think called CivTech Scotland, which, which basically takes a kind of 10 pilots, uh, takes them forward with a bit of funding for the startups, that then gets funneled into five, into three, and then into one sort of interesting, innovative platform in the end. 
Uh, it's a thing government does quite a bit, but, but my point is that that's great for really early companies. It's probably not what 20-person or 30-person scale-ups are looking, looking for. Um, what they really need is you know, easier, uh, more accessible ways of, of winning contracts, of, of getting in front of the right people, and, of, and, and to be honest, of showing how good their tech is. Mm. I mean, Gillian, in your experience, what, what has helped you? I mean, as, as the question is, what can government do to help young startups like Safe in the City? <laughs> I think, you know, aligning some of the, the policies into kind of, you know, what tech exists out there. Um, you know, we're unfortunately one of the very few, um, you know, tech solutions addressing, I guess, personal safety in terms of navigation, um, but also, you know, formalizing a data set like sexual harassment that can happen to men and women, but it's something that is massively underreported and we don't know the scale of kind of the problem. So how can we kind of work on any solutions? So I think it's aligning those agendas and making kind of those, those um, opportunities even for a meeting, you know, whether they're kind of open round tables or, um, you know, different touch points. Um, I think that would be a really good help to kind of navigate some of the things, um, including kind of funding and um, opportunities to uh, be able to look at other solutions that maybe haven't paved the same way, but do have kind of a evidence base and um, trackable record of how they're doing it. And I'll, I'll add one thing, which I think that the single most important government thing government could do is just engage with startups in a completely mm -hmm. different way. So at the moment, right, if, if there's a government opportunity even to build a really innovative um, health tech platform or a new way of doing traffic management, the way they do it is they release a, a contract on Contracts Finder and mm. on the you know, European, on OG. Yeah. Mm. Uh, they might tweet about it or something. Um, and really, they don't understand that that's not where to go. Mm. What they really should be doing is going around places like this. Yeah. Every, every we work in Shoreditch, every central working in London, <laughs> and saying, guys, we've got a real opportunity. You could win £500,000 mm. or something. Who's got some good ideas? But also we need the experts, right, to be involved in that as well. Mm. So mm -hmm. as a doctor, often I know a lot of doctors who kind of say, oh, God, this is making my life hell because I'm having to do all this paperwork and all this peripheral stuff. And, you know, it would be so much easier if we had this technology. But they're so bogged down with their day-to-day -day mm. job and they can't yeah. ever imagine removing themselves from it and the opportunities that mm. might be out there that would be able to really assist them in, in innovating. So I think they need to get closer to, to who needs it. They could also listen to this podcast. Mm. <laughs> good news, I think the pizza's arrived. So, uh, yeah, always good when it's cold. Look, um, not the pizza. Uh, Gillian, you mentioned there about funding. Yes. What's the appetite of the VC community to help startups in this space? Because, you know, Johnny, I think you're, I can't remember the stats. You'll be able to remember it better than me. But what, the, the spending government was near 7 billion, but there was yeah. 20 million for the startup sector. Yeah. We know that the VC community is fundamental to the way that startups are funded. But, you know, if you think about the, the people that we've had on the show, Jack, um, they tend to follow West Coast models where they don't really care unless they get profit 10 years down the line. And if mm. 99 fail and one makes it big, that's what matters. It's saying Hanji from Hoxton Ventures. He's a very nice man. But yes, Hoxton Ventures do follow the, the West Coast model. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of change in terms of not only kind of the build and um, tech that's out there represented of the problems and kind of how we address solution 
how we start to address some of the solutions. But equally, I think there is kind of there is a gap between kind of that yeah bog standard. This is the science of how we might be able to calculate our um, you know ROI in five to ten years on exit. Um, and there's a really interesting term now kind of coming because we know that consumers, um, whether that's millennials or um, Generation Y, are really changing how they spend and what businesses they engage with are going more into um, you know, the, the brand values or how do they um, deal with certain things like um, GDPR compliance. Um, so people, consumers are doing that. And then there is kind of the other side where, you know, people, talent is looking for um, places that they feel included and respected. So I think that there is um, this, this kind of waiting point to really start erupting. There are a number of different, um, I think, VCs that have taken kind of a forefront, um, Mustard Seed being one of them, uh, clearly so, and some of the startups such as What3Words they've invested in. Uh, so I think we are kind of at this cusp and we're not looking at kind of the generation of unicorns, we're really looking at the generation mm. of zebras. Mm. So kind of the, the black and white that we can't, we don't need to compromise because we found a way that we can do impact and we can commercialize to be self-sustaining. But I think, can I just add to that? I don't know what you found about the, the diversity or lack of diversity mm. within VC. And it's hard to kind of touch upon this without yes. talking about lack of diversity. Of course, on it. yes. Uh, but I mean, I was reading a report saying that in 2018, 93% um, of VC funding went to all male founding uh, companies. Yes. Which I just think is absolutely baffling isn't it, in this day oh, yeah. and age, you know? And again, I think those can be barriers or opportunities to kind of pave and, and yeah. create yeah. new waves. But I think for purpose or social enterprises, which we are, um, do have a lot to stack up and prove of ourselves um, before we are kind of able to show that we're doing that. And we do have some exciting announcements to stay tuned with some global partnerships about how we're able to not only put this information kind of at a London-wide level, but how we actually now uh, move nationally. Yeah, unfortunately, I I know that from from our last event, actually, we had Jessie Bella Perez when she was at uh, in her previous job at um, UKTN. UKTN. Thanks, Jack. Um, <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> she was talking about the fact that she'd heard many, many times female founders finding male co-founders yeah. to unlock investment yeah. mm. i was at an event last week um and one of the points there was the woman is pip jameson who started the dots which is like a no collar linkedin sort of thing mm. really really cool she said you know to look for mentors and look to look for business partners she looks for men that have got daughters as simple as that yeah. you know i mean i don't know if that's you know, it might be a bit through rose tinted <laughs> lenses but that is that's a simple start right <laughs> well we've definitely at least for the state of the city like we do have a number of men on our team but they they have had some sort of experience or very um very much either fathers or you know had wives or or partners or friends have something happen to them that they can at least relate to or they've experienced themselves so it is kind of that tying knot when you are so embedded in kind of the focus on the solution space to you know a massive problem.